Hello and welcome back to another episode of Extraordinary, which is a podcast all about ordinary people who have gone on to do and see extraordinary things. And this week's guest has done just that. Samuel Dweck is a film director who has directed not one, but two music videos for Little Mix. And in this episode, Samuel tells me all about how he navigated his career from architecture to directing and how he's dedicated his entire working career to the queer community and what it was like to grow up gay. Samuel is an incredible talent and I'm so honoured he agreed to take part in this series. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd absolutely love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share it with friends and family or anyone who you think can benefit from Samuel's words of wisdom. Enjoy the show. Mr. Samuel Dweck, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I am great. Yeah, I'm good. Good. Good to see you. Um, You have been a very busy man of late. Um, For all good reasons, we've had to reschedule this a few times, but I assume you're like all systems go and every day is a busy day for you. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty full on. I mean, like the film industry in general in this summer has really kicked off because everybody wants to film at the moment um sort of on the tail end of the pandemic it's actually really hard to kind of get crew and there's a camera shortage in london so i'm i'm as busy as all the other directors i guess oh really there's an actual like supply chain issue in the industry because it's so busy i think it's a combination of like brexit and just huge demand um and which supply can't meet so yeah but you know it's exciting and i haven't managed to you know things have been a little bit difficult to organize when planning for productions but we haven't been unable to do anything yet so it's all good it just requires a little bit more manpower than it otherwise would have got you got you okay well let's jump straight in um for those who don't know who you are uh, tell everyone um who you are and what you do so I'm Samuel Dweck. I am a film director. I mainly work across music videos, but I also do commercials and some content and fashion pieces and documentaries as well, which is where I started, mainly looking at issues that affect the LGBTQ community. And I'm beginning to work on some narrative projects. So, you know, more scripted stuff, which is really exciting as I'm kind of just beginning that journey. And then aside to film, I uh, run events. I've been running queer events in London for uh, almost five years. And one of those events, which was called How, has over the pandemic grown into a sex positive lifestyle brand with CBD lube products at its core. So I had no idea this was going to happen, but I've become a CBD lube company owner as well as being a film director, which is uh, keeping me busy. But I'm yeah, I'm enjoying all of it. And do you see all of those ventures and projects being, is there like a common thread that links them all together? Obviously, there's the LGBT aspect, but are all of these things, things that you're personally extremely passionate about? Or have you fallen into them but in, in some way? A film is first and foremost my career. It's what I earn money from. It's what I'm the most invested in. It's what requires and demands 90% of my time. And it's where I see my career kind of mm. going. Uh, events, I, you know, are a really sort of big part of my 
adulthood and you know the it, the community that I'm a part of but it's also something that changes over time and may not be something that's that stays with me in my future or maybe something that goes away and then comes back in different forms you know I never did events for money I did them because I loved doing them and I wanted to do them for a community that I loved but um you know something has to give sometimes so one event I used to run called bump I felt like I had to kind of give let that go once the pandemic struck but also you know we'd been running it for five years and it just kind of felt like it was it had come to its natural conclusion and I didn't really want to flog a dead horse mm. um but how um I am really passionate about um I, I find it hard to to juggle the time because my um directing is so demanding but there's a team who work for um who work for how who are great and who sort of carry out the day-to-day work so i'm able to kind of take a bit of a back seat and kind of creatively direct from afar and and touch in every few days or sort of make sure i know what's going on um and then i also have a sort of side project which is you know part part event part live art installation which is called the camper van which is this modified caravan that has a stage that folds out one side of the the wall which I love it's like the bane of my life this bloody caravan that I have to like ship around everywhere I mean it's currently in my car park in my building and we're applying for Arts Council funding to renovate it but I mean honestly Arts Council applications just take so long so I'm struggling to find time to do that as well so I guess something will have to give soon but I, I like to kind of keep fingers in many pies because I guess I just get bored easily. Hundred percent, and 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 would you say like the obviously not how because that is clearly a, you know a very healthy and positive growing business, but how much of what you spend your time on are passion projects versus your career? I know you said film is how you make your money, but are you happy to invest your time and energy in projects that aren't always for for money? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I have never ever been driven by financial gain. I probably wish I was more like that because I wouldn't be poor. <laughs> but um, I everything I've done, I've always done because I, I enjoy doing it. Like I'm really bad at doing things that I don't like doing, like commercial projects or content pieces for things that I just don't care about. So it, I guess that's how I ended up in music videos because music videos, especially early on when you first start, the budgets are tiny. And you know, it's it's weeks, if not months of work. Um, and to be paid like 500 pounds for like two and a half months work is, is just not a lot of money. You know, it's not something that someone can survive off of. So I had to get bar jobs. No I way. Myself. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I get like a percentage of budgets. So if budgets are big, then it's great. But if budgets are tiny, which they oh. are, um, you know, when you first start out, then it is difficult. And I, you know, I find it, I'm always impressed by people who kind of live a freelance life in London, because I really struggled, you know, I had to get a job in in a bar to, to kind of sustain myself and live in guardianships because they were more affordable and it gave me the space that I wanted. So I was kind of willing to sacrifice my kind of financial comfort for the sake of passion projects that I really yeah. loved it. And that goes as far back as me leaving architecture to pursue film because I could have happily, you know, done c- continued on in a career in architecture and had a stable income and probably had a mortgage by now but I decided I wanted to do something I loved and only recently am I kind of beginning to work on bigger projects and not and I'm allowed I'm, I'm now able to pick and choose a little bit more what I do 
because for a really long time I had to just take anything you know I had to kind of take any content piece any kind of club night film that anyone was willing to give me 200 or 300 pounds for just so I could survive in London um, whereas now I'm able to kind of yeah sort of take a little step back and you know invest my time more wisely um but i still very much do passion projects like i i don't think i would ever be able to just do big commercial stuff because i think i'd find it really uninspiring and also when you do the passion projects that are kind of low risk i guess for want of a better term you can experiment and you can do stuff that maybe you can't really do on big projects because you know there's a lot of there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of people expecting a certain standard. So you wouldn't kind of, you know, throw the caution to the wind and do something that you hadn't tried before. Yeah. Yeah. And also that's where the creativity happens because you're your own, I mean, you're always your, your own creative boss, but I guess there's less accountability when you're doing your own passion projects and you can actually grow and learn, as you said, and, and you know, be inspired. So that's amazing. Uh, you touched on it there briefly around your your career or what was going to be your career in architecture. You studied architecture for seven years. Did it take seven years before you realised that actually it wasn't for you? Like how, what was going through your mind towards whilst you were studying, but I guess more crucially towards the end when you actually be, uh, began to be a, a practising architect? So how it works is you do like a three year undergrad and then you work for a, a year or two. I did two years and then you go back and do your master's, your part two. Um, so that was the seven years. So I was kind of studying for five, working for two. And I loved my undergrad. It was incredibly hard work. Like I've ne I learned the real meaning of hard work in architecture school. Um, but I gained so much from it in terms of discipline and like just a worldly education you learn so much about so many different things from like politics to economics and physics and art so I, I loved it really and I'd always wanted to be an architect from as early as I can remember I've got no idea where that came from as a kid but somehow I just decided I want to be an architect and it wasn't until I started practicing when I did my like part one year out that placement that I looked at my sort of colleagues around me who were in their mid-30s who were kind of overworked underpaid graying at their hairlines and just sort of slaving away for a design that also wasn't really under their name they were working for a, a company and you know who uh, and bosses who kind of I guess took all the credit and I was just it was very it was very clear to me that you know I loved studying it but I didn't what this wasn't going to be my career I didn't I didn't like the world that it was in I didn't like the community that was around the world I just didn't feel like I fitted in you know I was super sort of camp and queer and I just didn't it's very straight and macho and white and I just didn't yeah, it, it didn't sit right with me, but I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no fucking clue. I wasn't one of those people who was like, I came out of the womb, um, you know, using a film camera and decided this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, I'd never even considered that film was an option. I, I liked taking photos as like as a hobby, but that's really as far as it went. So I decided to do my master's in architecture, but I decided to go to an art school, the Royal College of Art, because I was like, well, at least I'll be around other people doing other interesting things and maybe I'll find something that I like. And I did, I mean, shockingly, I, I did. And I still feel really lucky that at 26 or 25, 26, I found something I loved because I feel like most people never do. So I feel, I feel very fortunate that I started making little documentaries about gay bars in London closing down, uh, bars that were very important to me. And 
fell in love with filmmaking from shooting to interviewing and the production phase and editing. You know, I kind of just taught myself everything with YouTube tutorials and little uh, pieces of advice from people who hired out equipment to me in the AV department. And yeah, just cobbled together uh, this kind of idea that I actually really wanted to make films. And I w- I'd always get sort of criticized in my in my crit saying, you know, you really need to start designing a building and stop making films at some point. Um, so yeah, uh, when I when I when I graduated, I, you know, Brexit had just happened. And I was like, okay, well, do I go and get a job back in my old architecture practice, just because I need money and need to survive? Um, or do I kind of look elsewhere? And, and the decision was kind of made for me because of Brexit. Like there, you know, loads of architecture practices were going under quite big changes. Loads of people were being made redundant. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not even going to try. So I'm just going to commit to freelance life from from the off. And I got a job in a bar um, to to survive in London and um, pay my way. And just slowly started to make films where possible you know i i would uh, email people i would reach out i would start making films for club nights um some friends of mine who were launching interesting businesses were kind of interested in me making little pieces and just began to make films and also learn how to make films because i didn't really know anything so at every project i learned more and more so so in my head this this is kind of you know why you're here and why you're so extraordinary because you'd come like this was you had just spent the best part of five years understanding architecture um doing an undergrad networking with people experiences of architects and who who were practicing it in in firm and then you start creating films on the side and in my head as someone who has dabbled in in production through work i've worked in marketing for eight years and and elements of advertising it's an incredibly difficult um sector you know there's all sorts of tech there's equipment there's hardware there's software there's editors lighting sound there's engineers it's like loads of really hard to understand stuff that goes on behind the scenes so i'm just kind of interested in how you started to to teach yourself like it surely it can't have just been youtube tutorials and and i guess the other question is how did you fund it i mean these subscriptions for like premiere cut pro and photoshop and in like all those kind of platforms are are quite pricey aren't they um, well, on the price side, the Adobe Suite's fifty pounds a month, and I think for a student, it, when I was a student, it was like twenty five. So it was like a cost that I could I could kind of just take on. Um, yeah, I mean, the truth is, I got into loads of debt <laughs> on credit card debt <laughs> to survive in London. Um, like that, you know, I was kind of just paying my way, um, surviving, but to actually live a life and, you know, also like socialize and go out with friends and maybe buy a pair of jeans every few months. Like, yeah, I was living off a credit card, which I'm still paying off. So, you know, it's tough Mm. in London and I'm not going to pretend otherwise that it's not like, that's why I'm always so impressed that people managed to do it because, you know, I really hustled and I made sure that I was busy and I made sure I was making stuff all the time. And so for so yeah, I mean, I, I honestly like have, have. I'm always really impressed that people manage to survive in London because it's tough. You know, I, I didn't get any help from my parents, so it's yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 a journey, and it's one that I you know really kind of fought for. And in terms of the self education, 
yeah, as you said, YouTube tutorials only get you so far, but you learn so much on set. Like, you know, from picking up terminology that you on you're not really sure to actually testing stuff yourself. So when I used to self shoot, I learned what different lenses were. I learned what different things meant. Um, and then also I asked, I really wasn't afraid to kind of ask. Well, don't know, that's a lie. At, at, at the beginning, I was really afraid. I felt like I had to pretend like I knew what I was doing. I was faking it until I was making it. And I think that was to my own detriment because it wasn't until that I kind of relinquished this ego and I was like, actually, I'm working with this director of photography. He's qualified. He's been to film school. He knows far more than me. I have an idea of what I want to achieve, but I don't know the right words, the right lighting, the right lenses in order to achieve it. So let me ask him what we need to do and and let him kind of advise. And that that's how I, you know, I learned things. I wasn't afraid to be like, oh, I actually don't know what a Kino flow means, or I actually don't know, you know, what this means. Can, can, can you explain it and 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 just slowly picked things up and you know i left architecture i left the rca in 2016 i started making like hodgepodge films that you know that year and i'd say it wasn't until the beginning of 2017 that i was doing my first like actual commissions and like people were paying me to make films for them um so and th and then it wasn't until 20 18 the end of 2018 or maybe no end of 2019 that i was like making my first proper music videos like signed with like through labels with with a production company so it you know people often say to me oh it's happened really quickly this you know you this kind of jump that you've made to working with big artists but in my mind i have hustled for years <laughs> so it's a little that quick to be honest but i've you know i've enjoyed yeah. every aspect of it and and often i i thought oh i wish i'd gone to film school instead of doing an architecture masters and in hindsight i really don't know actually I'm, I'm really glad i have my education in architecture that i that i you know approach things from a design perspective and um that i'm good at like problem solving mm -hmm. so uh, you know i i think I, I don't think you need to go to film school. I think you, you can learn everything on the job. I mean, and also, and you know, and fuck up on the job because I definitely fucked up a lot of times and made big mistakes. That's really interesting. And to your point, I mean, this is exactly why we do uh, we do podcasts because I think it's so interesting for people who are looking for inspiration to hear from people like you who have had a really atypical route into the industry and you know, you've had to make an incredible amount of, of sacrifices, big financial and emotional sacrifices to, to get to where you are today. And I just think it's really interesting. And again, just huge congrats to you for everything you've achieved, because I'm um, just listening to you now, it, it sounds scary. It's certainly not something I would want to put myself through because I'm so naturally risk averse and always get so nervous about you know quitting my I've thought about it should I quit my job and become a freelancer and then be a digital nomad and go and lie on a beach in Thailand and just you know look for a job lots of people tell me that I should do that but I'm too nervous I like I I want to stay in my comfort mm. zone so I I think what you've done it is incredibly interesting the thing is is that it's way easier to stay poor if you've always been poor <laughs> <laughs> I left university <laughs> and became freelance. You know what I mean? So I, I, you know, I, I always hustled until I kind of need to needed to hustle a little bit less. I think it's way harder to quit a job when you have financial security, especially when you're a little bit older and, you know, you're earning a decent salary because you are giving up a lot and you are potentially facing like a lot of money lost. 
Um, so in that respect, I'm kind of happy that I kind of just bit the bullet and did it, you know, when I when I could do it. Because yeah, because if I had become an architect, I don't think I would have ever actually quit to pursue a career in film because it's too, you know. But but then again, you know, it's never too late. And I, I also feel like you, you, at some point you need to kind of weigh up your happiness. And for me, my job is my life. It consumes my life, but I love it. And so I'm happy to work Sundays. I'm happy to mm. work until 11 every night. You know, it's, I'm, I'm happy to work with amazing people. So you know i i think i think if if you're that type of person who needs fulfillment from from the things that you do and not the things outside of your work like me then you know make that jump because it is worth it yeah i mean it is interesting what you said though because had you have become an architect and i don't know i don't know how much architects earn but in my head they earn quite well um i just wonder if you were sitting here you it's not it's not true no they earn terrible money Oh, well, that's sad. Okay, well, then my argument, because I was going to say, well, if you were sat here earning, I don't know, 70, 80, 90, even 100 grand a year, I just wonder if you still would have given that up to go and produce some 500 pound film for a, for an unsigned music artist. I mean, I guess everyone's different. And like I've said earlier on, like I have never been somebody who has worked to be rich um, to my mm. own detriment. I feel like I, I wish I was better with money. I, I have colanders for hands. I literally earn money and it just disappears. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm so good at spending money. It's like it's like an actual, I, I'm like A plus in spending money. Um, but, so, <laughs> I, so I think, you know, because of that, I, I, I have this attitude where I much, I, I need to love what I do. Um, but I think actually some people really love earning money and they love, feeling comfortable and they love going on fabulous holidays and buying nice clothes and they don't really care what they do they just want to have a nice holiday and go on weekends and I envy those people in a way because they are stable <laughs> but I you know I I, yeah. I given the type of person I am I think I probably would have lasted in architecture for a little bit and then at some point I would have cracked and I would have been like get me out of here I need to do anything I need to do something um, which is why I say that I feel fortunate to have found something I loved at, in my late 20s, which I, at the time I felt was late. At the time I felt, oh my God, I'm catching up with people who have already been doing this for years. But it's not late, it's really young. And you know, you're never too old to do anything to make a big career change, especially these days. Because you know, the idea of a job for life that our parents kind of were committed to doesn't exist. You know, people change careers so regularly and frequently and retrain. So I think it's, yeah, I don't, I think it's never too late mm. to give up a big salary for a 500 pound promo. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, and I actually think that's a trend that we're going to see get bigger um, in the next few years and, and decades ahead of us. I think certainly people um, graduating from school nowadays probably will not have a, one career for life. Uh, you know, I've seen it. Um, where I work now, that the number of grads applying are getting fewer. Their 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 desires are different. They kind of want to be freelancers. They're exploring startups. They just want to learn, which I think is interesting. Um, but of course, you you then had like yes, there was a lot of hustling. But in the last few months, we have seen the blow up of Samuel Dweck because <laughs> you went on to direct two music videos for my all-time favorite artist in the entire world and anyone who knows me well will know that I am an avid obsessed 
fan of Little Mix and I have no shame in that. Um, and you directed the Confetti music video, which is one of the biggest bangers they've ever done. And the more recent one, Heartbreak Anthem with David Guetta, which is also phenomenal. And I play on replay. I play it on replay all day, every day. Um, and that is huge. And I want to get under the skin of A, how that happened and B, how you feel about it. What was that roller coaster like? Because I think for someone who is like you just described, you're late into the industry, there's elements of feeling a bit like an imposter because there are people with much more years experience. How did you feel going into the project? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was wild, to be honest. Um, I, how it worked is I, I pitched on Heartbreak Anthem, um, first in February. Um, my agent sent me the track and obviously I like freaked out. I was like, oh my God, Little Mix track. And she said, I know this is a big jump for you, but the commissioners at Sony have vouched for you because I've worked with them before and they want you to pitch on it. So because I'd done a few projects with the record label already and they liked what I'd done with them and um, you know how the projects went before, they were like, he's ready, he can, he can do this, he can make this big jump. So I was obviously really gagged because anyone who knows me also knows that I'm also a Little Mix fan. <laughs> um, and I loved the song and I was, pitched okay well I was like well I really want to win this I'm going to come up with three ideas not just one idea so I came up with three ideas and I sent all three in and the one they liked the most was the winged fatale as I as I called them um but so yeah so I won it was it was nuts I mean I I couldn't believe that I'd done it and we were going to make it in two weeks and I was actually kind of working in Mexico at the time so I kind of had to stop all my work book flights return to Mexico quarantine because of the pandemic. And I was at the, the day after quarantine, we were going to go into rehearsals. And then the song leaked. So the shoot was potentially going to be cancelled. And yeah, I was really bummed out, to be honest. I was just a bit devastated because, you know, it was everything I'd ever wanted in the sense that when I first started doing music videos, I said to my agent, I was like, one day I want to do a little mix video because that, that for me will be like the dream. Um, so I had been presented with my dream and then it had been taken away from me. And also I had like post-Mexico blues. So I was, I was Miz. Um, but you know what? I'm used to it. How the music video industry runs. Like I'm so used to rejection. I pitch all the time. I probably win about 10, 20% of pitches that I pitch on. So it's, you know, water for ducks back onto the next one. Let's start doing some other projects. And then, um, confetti came in because actually sorry i got that wrong heartbreak anthem was with a different label it was with atlantic in america because of galantis whereas confetti is with sony who is from mix's record label in the uk so they were actually completely separate entities which had no involvement with each other so when i pitched on confetti and and won that that was just so bizarre because there was that nobody knew that i was pitching on both and nobody knew that i'd won the pitching process is from the record label to production companies. It doesn't go through management or the artists themselves. It's so no one really knows who's doing what. No, it, it does. So like artists are kind of like the last port of call. They kind of like I have the final say on the video they want to make. And then commissioners right. who either work for labels or are independent, they kind of organize the commissioning of the video on the behalf of labels. 
and commissioners send it to agents or directors rep reps and those uh, agents send it to their direct their various directors to pitch on so every music video ever made unless it's a um a single bid will have you know between five or 10 or 15 directors pitching on it so it's really competitive it's a really competitive industry um but that competition in a way makes you better you know i look at the treatments i used to make two years ago and they were shit you know no wonder i wasn't winning them and it's made me become a better filmmaker because london is a really inspiring place and there's there's hundreds of directors doing wonderful things so to be able to compete with them at that level mm -hmm. is really kind of inspiring um so i but so but in, in that instance it was different commissioners different labels and Galantis were kind of the main decision makers, I guess. And then obviously David Guetta and, and Little Mix had to approve things, but also nobody knew who I was, nobody knew my name. So when I first went to the confetti rehearsal and I was with the girls and we were speaking and at the end of it, and I was like, oh, and I'm really excited to do Heartbreak Anthem with you next week. And they were like, you're doing Heartbreak Anthem as well? And I was like, yeah, didn't you know? And they were like, oh my God, no. So that, that was funny. Cause I guess it was just kind of, just no, nobody clocked that because I'm. I was no one, I guess. Does it matter what your portfolio is, or does it like we like this treatment, this this response to brief, and we're going to run with it? We don't actually care who Samuel Dweck is and what he's done previously. No, I'd say it's it's about half half. I mean, the treatment is as important as your showreel and your previous work because if you haven't done certain projects at a certain level, then you don't get access to certain projects at a certain level. So. It's a bit of a catch-22, mm. you know. It's like becoming a filmmaker in the first place. It's like, oh, I want to get signed to a production company, but I've never made a music video. But in order to get signed to a production company, I have to have a music video made. It's, it's, it's this constant up and down, which is why when a label kind of vouches for you to make a big jump because you did a low-budget project really well, it's someone believing in you. So, it, yeah, you, you have to have a good showreel. And I, and I had, a, you know, I was proud of the work that I'd done thus far but i'd never done any i'd never worked with a major artist i'd only worked with uh emerging and kind of smaller artists so so yeah it was a it was a bit of a whirlwind and you know confetti was nuts because we had to shoot it in three weeks so we only had three weeks of prep so we had to cast 25 people um do all of the choreo appoint all of the heads of department appoint i think there were 80 crew crew um in two weeks, two, two weeks. So, and and then that was the 13th, 30th and 31st. And we also had to kind of, you know, we had to design all the prosthetics for, for Little Mix, what the men were gonna look like, um, all of that development. So it was, it was really hectic. As all music videos are, music videos are always nuts. You only ever get two or three weeks prep. The fact that Heartbreak Anthem actually did get the green light and we ended up having like a month or two months of prep was crazy. And actually a month of two months, two months of prep is sometimes a disadvantage because people in promos are so used to working short term. So nothing really happens. Someone's like, oh, we'll do it once when it's two weeks away. So we were kind of just waiting for things to kick off apart from the wing, the wings took ages. So we, we, were, we were building the wings for a really long time, but we ended up shooting them a week apart before and after Easter. Um, so we shot two days confetti, day one as girls, day one as boys. Then we had the Easter break and then we went straight into a heartbreak anthem, which I think we shot on like the 7th of April or like the 9th of April. 
so yeah it was it was it was really full on and you know i gave i felt like i gave everything you know there was nothing more i could have given um so it was i was afterwards i was just completely drained and exhausted and you know you do kind of get that like post work come down so i felt like i was a bit like strung out after after that um and i wanted to kind of it was a bit of a wake up call because i was like well you know if this is my life if this is going to be the level of stress that i work at then i kind of need to be mentally prepared for that so i kind of started therapy and started like meditating and like just making sure I was doing yoga. So I just wanted to kind of be able to kind of cope with the level of pressure moving forward. Um, so I'm feeling really, like really good right now. I'm really positive and ready for like the next round of projects that are coming. That's incredible. I was going to ask you, and you just touched on it there, how you felt in those three weeks of prep. I mean, this is probably the, well, certainly the biggest gig that you've, that you've had to date. You haven't done anything, if you don't mind me saying, as big as this. I'm sure production budget-wise, it's probably big, or the biggest you've done, certainly. How did you feel emotionally from a psychological perspective? I'm, I'm thinking here about imposter syndrome. Did you feel like you were ready for it? Did you believe in yourself? I definitely believed in myself. I definitely knew I could do it. I was ready, but I didn't sleep for a month i had pure insomnia i like the level of expectation and pressure that i put on myself was like something i've never experienced before but it was also like kind of valid you know in a way like i had my like people telling me like don't fuck this up you know like so it was it was a yeah it, it was a level of pressure that i've never experienced but also one that like i don't think i could have avoided um and drove you know it drove me to to do better and I, you know i really went above and beyond I, I really tried to make sure that every single detail was was perfect um and obviously that's unachievable that's never going to be the case and i look at the film now and there's obviously things i would have done differently in hindsight but um yeah i think that added to my exhaustion because i just i just couldn't sleep and i and i was i i'm really you know i i really value sleep i always sleep really well so to be able to not sleep and just be thinking you know what do i what, what about this what, that? what am i going to do when i need to finish the storyboard what do I do? All the styling references you know there was just a huge quantity of work that i had to do and i was the only person who to do it and and you know all of these heads of department all of these crew members need you to tell them what to do. So if I don't do it, they don't know what they're doing. So it was just a huge volume of work that had to be done. Um, and now, you know, I'm, I've got a few projects coming up, which are, I guess as big, um, and I'm sleeping fine. You know, I also think I kind of had to go through that process to become accustomed to working at this kind of level, know that I can do it, to feel comfortable doing it. So now I'm kind of just taking everything in my stride and also not letting it consume me. You know, I've, I've got, I'm doing, I'm doing a few music videos, I guess almost back to back. We've got like three shoots in 10 days coming up, which is crazy again, crazy, but I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of prepared for it in a way. And also I'm kind of what, you know, more trusting of people. If, for example, I, I wasn't able to like, pull together lighting references as quickly as I would have done. I'll have them for the tech recce, but I didn't have them for my first meeting with the DOP and uh, who's the director of photography is kind of like the head camera guy. And 
you know, I just went up to him and I was like, you know what, this is my idea. These are some references, but I, I don't have 40 pages of references as I normally would because I'm just too busy. And he was like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> what about this? What about this? And we just brainstormed together. So it, it's also kind of about delegating a bit more, not being such a control freak. And, you know, when you're working at a kind of maximum capacity, you can't do everything. So it's about, okay, well, who, who can I, how can I best manage and how, what can I, how, what's the best use of my resources? Um, but yeah, I mean, I still do try and do everything. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, do you feel like, I mean, yes, the Little Mix gig was definitely you being thrown in at the deepest possible end ever. Like, because if you're going to learn, you're going to learn by doing two back-to-back Little Mix music videos who are the biggest girl group in the world. But I just wonder if actually you did fall victim of probably doing too much. Did you probably go above and beyond in a way that actually is never going to be... Um, you're never going to be able to replicate that or do again because you probably went into it with 40 pages of lighting references when actually you probably didn't need to and it probably isn't your job? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that as a director, you you make of your job what you do. Every director works in a different way. Some directors kind of just hand it over to heads of departments to kind of do, do their own thing and turn up to set. But I, I have a very clear idea of what I want to achieve um, and... I need to be able to communicate that to people. So I kind of have to have to put in that kind of work in order to kind of, yeah, you know, carry out this vision, I guess. Um, yeah. I definitely burnt myself out, I guess. But I think that was because, not because of the workload, but because of the mental health and the pressure I put on myself and the lack of sleep. I think I can definitely handle that level of work. From architecture school, I'm used to it. Um, and I'm really good under pressure. I don't know, I wish I wasn't because I'm, the, the truth is I'm really lazy if there's no like, like pending doom. Yeah. But when there is pending doom, I'm like, I'm, I'm my best. So I, for me, I, I'm, you know, I, 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 can, I can handle it, but I, that I just need to look after my mental health. So it's why I've kind of taken steps outside of it to kind of, yeah, just look after myself and, and, you know, I, I'd given so much and I, I wanted people to love it so much. And the response was great, apart from the backlash from the drag king community. And because of that backlash, you know, I, 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 that really affected me because not only did I want everyone to love it after giving everything in any, any form of criticism you're going to take personally, but I also have dedicated my adult life to servicing the queer community. So to feel that I'd like hurt part of the queer community that I care so much about, I found really devastating. But the kind of silver lining of that experience is I kind of took away the importance of work. Now I kind of, I'm not gonna sacrifice my mental health for my job. I think at the time I put so much importance on it that any kind of shortcoming really affected me. Whereas now I've kind of taken away the importance. And if I do make a mistake again, which I undoubtedly will, I'll address it and I will learn and I will do better and I will grow, but I'm not gonna let it destroy my health, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I think I kind of, I mean, I'm slightly frustrated that you feel like you you did make a mistake because I would question whether that's actually a group of people's opinion rather than fact, especially when you did so much good for the queer community. I mean, 
Little Mix by their very nature are probably the biggest ambassadors of the queer community and they also would never want to do or cause any harm to to the community so do you think and this is a slight side point now that we are this woke movement council culture etc goes too far when they start I mean I'm annoyed for you I don't know whether you, you you feel this or not but like I'm annoyed that you felt that you had done a disservice to the queer community because a, a, a select probably very small group of people felt like you didn't represent the drag king community in the right way I mean I the thing is I always think cancel culture is valid in a way. I feel like if people are called out, then they they deserve to be called out. I think the way mm. in which it happens can often be quite like violent and aggressive. Um, I feel like I kind of didn't experience, you know, I I, I wouldn't feel bad for me. Like no, I, nothing that bad happened. Like everybody, all of the drag kings who spoke up said, we really like the video. It's great that drag is being represented we just wish we would have been included alongside the drag queens in, in casting. Um, and I messaged every single one of those people who um, spoke out and spoke to them directly. And they were all really happy that I reached out and they were all singing praises about the video, but they were like, yeah, you know, just next time we want to. And so I, I did learn from it in a way, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we should have mm. um, cast drag kings alongside it. You know, it, but the thing is, is that, you know, I tried to be so inclusive. We had trans men, we had trans women in the cast alongside a huge queer cast, which are my friends, people I know. So it was a very personal project for me and one that I was really happy to kind of celebrate Queer London on such a mainstream platform. And I'm proud of the fact that we did that. But I, I also think when you try and be the most inclusive, you open yourself up to critique about inclusion. You know, if I had never done any of that and we just had... Yeah normal casting through a casting agency nobody would have ever said anything but when you try and do everything but you fall short that's where people kind of pick and I don't disagree with them and I don't resent it for it uh, you know if anything the fact that anyone would feel any form of offense at my own decision making is upsetting um yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not bitter about it. If anything, I, th I think it was a really good yeah. learning experience. And I'm really, really happy that I confronted it. Because I, I think the worst thing you can do is just pretend it's not happening. Um, but if somebody calls you out online, you know, you have to address it because no one's vicious. Like, they're, they're calling you out because they want you to learn. And I opened myself up to education and learning. And next time I will do better. So it was a positive outcome. Yeah, it's all about intent and you make a very good point. But I mean, that aside, obviously you got, I think you were, I saw on your sister's Instagram, babe, um, that she, that you were, you were trending. Were you trending? Like that, like the fans went absolutely mad for the videos. They loved it. You got all the validation that you deserved. Um, two of their best ever videos. So I hope that you take comfort in knowing that, Yes, there might have been some learnings along the way, but I think that is that goes hand in glove with the um, with the creative process. You know, in the advertising industry, if you make an advert, some people will love it, some people will hate it. Same with music, same with art, same with the show. Like that's that's the magic of the arts. Um, yeah, no, and exactly. even architecture. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, like the 
the fact that people even have an opinion on your work is kind of interesting. I mean, I, you know, I've never done anything on such a global stage. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, I think the best thing is the fans, the mixers, because they, um, and that's why I love pop, because pop has such a dedicated fan base. And when you when you release a video yeah. into the world, there's, you know, you know, uh, uh, there's just so much amazing feedback. And, and I just remember kind of, you know, 2009 watching like Lady Gaga's telephone video come out and it just being like a cultural moment and being surrounded by loads of like queers at an after party and everybody crowding around the laptop and being like, oh my God. <laughs> and like, I just want to make those moments, those like pop cultural moments, especially for like the young, like boys and girls and gender non-conforming kids that um, are sat at home, like screaming and fangirling over like their superstars. So if I can have a small part to play in yeah. creating, you know, music video history, then, I mean, that would just be so wonderful. My opinion you already have, but that is a perfect segue because one thing that I wanted to chat to you about is that you and I have been friends for over 20 years um which is mad we are, we are now old men that's crazy um and you and i um have an interesting history because we were talking about our sexuality when we were very 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 young in fact i probably think you were probably the first person i ever spoke to about it on msn in the <laughs> 90s i i've got no idea how old we were but i know we were very young and we seem to have just found each other yeah and um, your email address was stripped for me oh my god <laughs> I was trying to dig out I do I am uh, a massive hoarder of all things data um so I was trying to dig out the MSN conversations for today but I didn't get there in time but I'll, I will and I will find oh I will send my god um <laughs> but what what struck what struck a chord with me is that you know, yes, your your Instagram, your Instagram, your MSN handle at I don't know. You must have been twelve. A child, yeah. A child was stripped for me. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, is that like I remember like coming up with my first email address, and like we were all just like joking around, and like my parents yeah. like approved this email address. I think they just <laughs> thought it was really funny that this kid had this really outrageous email address and that maybe that's like, oh, he's a bit of a lad, you know, like, oh, this, this spoiler, he's going to get all the girls. I mean, little did they know. But um, yeah, I mean, thank God that was changed. But that was my email address for years. And it was, it was actually stripped, yeah, it was it actually was. stripped for me underscore 69 at hotmail.com. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about your coming out experience and um, how much that has stayed with you into adulthood, what that period in your life was like. Was it positive? Was it negative? Uh, because you are someone who is so self-assured. You are so, as you say, sex positive. You have dedicated your career to supporting and advocating for the LGBTQ plus community. So in my my understanding or reading of that is that it's incredibly important to you and it has impacted your your life definitely i mean i always say if i wasn't queer god knows what i would do because everything i do has like an element of queerness to it i mean i think if i was just some kind of white cis het hetero man i'd be so lost i'd have to join like a rowing club or something to forge a sense of identity <laughs> 
Um, so I'm really grateful to my queerness. I think it's a blessing, really, because you, um, you know, the queer community is so varied and so diverse. And it's not like other sort of cultural groups that demand a point of entry, like you have to believe in the same religion or you have to support the same football team. Like anyone is queer just by nature of their being. So by entering into the queer community, you're part of something that come at, that will expose you to all different walks of life. And I think that's something that's really beautiful and something that I would have never have been granted access to if I if I wasn't queer. Um, my experience of coming out was very young. I, as you know, I was probably the first one for a few years to 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 come out. I mean, I, I had just turned 16. So it was it was like a, a few weeks after my 16th mm -hmm. birthday. And prior to that, I had been living quite a healthy queer double life. You know, I'd been clubbing in Soho with gay friends who were 18, 19 years old whilst I was 15 going to heaven and living this dual experience of my sort of traditional Jewish life in North London and my fabulous queer life in Soho. I was a Soho queen as a teenager and I was adopted by this group of older queers who like, yeah. really looked after me. And yeah, I had healthy relationships. You know, I, I, I kind of had a, I had a boyfriend at that time. And that is who my dad caught me holding hands with outside of a cinema um, after my 16th birthday. Reported it to my mother, who then asked me, she just asked me if I was gay, um, with my sister. And I said, yes. And, you know, it's funny because my my parents I think have a very different memory of those few months and I have and we've spoken about it since because now you know my parents are fantastic and we get on really well and we're very close and they're very supportive I mean that they're, they're you know they're huge like queer activists now but at the time you know their whole kind of world got turned upside down and their expectations for their son changed very rapidly and they also just didn't know anything about the queerness you know the the, the Jewish community is very traditional and I think any sort of queer friends my mum had, you know, in the 80s, kind of disappeared. Maybe they died from AIDS or they'd, they'd had really negative experiences. Um, so they were just really worried. They were so scared. They were so scared for me. They thought I was going to die. They thought I was selling my body. Like, they, they just didn't know. They thought, it, uh, yeah. So it was, it, was, it was tough in the sense that I felt very alone and I felt like, you know, I felt like nobody understood me and I felt like I had no one to kind of speak to. And I also kind of stopped seeing all of those friends from Soho because I was basically grounded, like I wasn't allowed to go out. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't until I kind of began to share my experiences with a couple friends, um, I think maybe yourself included, James, that I kind of felt like I could speak mm. about stuff. But you know, within the Jewish Northwest Southern community, you tell one person and within 24 minutes, every single person knows. And that is what happened. Um, but very luckily that happened as study leave for GCSEs happened. So I didn't have to see anyone because I mean, maybe it would have been fine. May I'm sure it would have been, maybe it would have been terrible. Who knows? I don't care. I was just like, I'm 16. I don't want to deal with this. Like, run away so I you know I just basically just didn't I just ran away and didn't didn't really speak to anyone apart from my like close friends who knew and kind of supported me and then I left I moved schools for sick form and went to um like quite a sort of posh boys school for for sick form 
um, where I basically went back in the closet. And I not 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 like honestly, but like I just didn't tell anyone, and, and then and then I kind of had to come out all over again. But it was fine because that was like a private school, and in in a way, those private schools that are very English, like kind of have this weird tolerance to homosexuality more than like you know normal schools that are a bit more you know sink or swim, like you get bullied and you get pushed around the locker room kind of thing. Mm. Um, so yeah, but I, you know, mm. it's funny. I, I came out so young, but in a way, I don't think it was until my mid 20s that I felt like I needed to stop pretending to be masculine I felt like even though I was gay and people knew and people were okay with it or tolerated it I had to present a version of myself that that was digestible which was kind of you know not very effeminate like kind of not too brash not not camp and I almost resented other queer people who were very proud of their femininity or their campness. And, and it was a big learning process for me to kind of relinquish this internal homophobia and like love my queer identity. And, you know, I started doing drag a little bit. I discovered performance art. I just discovered an amazing group of queer friends who really exposed me to so much. But that wasn't until my mid twenties, you know, for a really long time, I was ashamed, I guess, of being queer. And I don't think there's any shame in admitting that because I think it's such a common experience. Um, and I think we need to speak about it more because there's so much internal homophobia within the queer community. And there's so much like, you know, mask for mask culture very much exists. And even if people pretend it doesn't because everybody loves drag race and maybe someone will wear a heel on Pride, that doesn't mean that you won't hook up with someone because they don't have the right body type or they don't look a certain way or they speak in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think I think the more we speak about these things, the more honest people are about their own experiences. So I love the queer community, but it's very flawed. And it's something that we need to kind of constantly reevaluate. Beautifully put. I mean, I totally, I mean, not only does my coming out experience almost echo exactly what you went through from my parents having a completely different version of events in those early weeks and months and even years after I came out I went back in the closet as well I had to start again I moved schools I didn't get comfortable until my mid to even late 20s I'm a few years behind you uh, basically on your journey um, but yeah I totally agree that the the community is flawed mask for mask culture um, you know, straight acting privilege, all of that stuff is really, really toxic. Um, and yeah, that was a really, really interesting insight into your experiences and, and how it's um, shaped all of your projects so far. Um, finally, and it, and it's, you know, quite, you know, based on what we just discussed, it's a, it's a good segue into how what advice you would give to your younger self? Like looking back at Samuel, whether he's 15, 16, maybe even 18, what advice would you give that person as a 30 year old? I guess the advice I would give is to kind of not try to be someone else because I feel like I felt like I needed to, 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 be someone else in order for people to kind of like me or accept me. You know, I felt like I really needed the validation of other people um, when I was younger. And well, obviously, obviously to this day, I mean, everybody, everybody, you know, 
needs validation. Um, but it's funny, you go through this whole process of having to kind of realize that you can't, you, you can never really pretend to be anyone else because you, you always end up being yourself anyway. And actually, when you when you are when you are yourself, that's when people kind of accept you the most because people respond to authenticity, and you know people can spot, you know, fakeness and when your personality is contrived like really easily. And you know, by by kind of accepting who you are. I mean, it sounds so cheesy because I feel like I'm about to say, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? <laughs> It's true. But I think there is, true. there is an element of truth to it. And I feel like for so long, I kind of always, you know, had to felt like I needed to pretend to be something else. And I didn't like aspects of my personality or my my identity that, that really define me and actually are my strengths, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think I've got... But, but by learning to embrace the things that... Are my flaws, I, I actually have kind of learned, learned that they're, they're real strengths. Perfectly timed. I love that siren. Um, no, you are, and and you are the epitome of someone with incredibly thick skin, loads of resilience, and someone who's really pursued genuine passions and interests. Um, because you know life is short, and we we're only here, we're only here for a short period of time, and, and you want to live life to the fullest. And I think there are lots of people listening to this podcast today who are going to be incredibly inspired and moved by your your story, both your professional and personal ones. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been a privilege and an honor to see you again. Um, and hopefully when you're not so busy and you're having a bit of a break, we can actually go and hang out. Thank you so much, James. Honestly, this has been so lovely to catch up. And yeah, you know, I really do treasure and value the experiences we shared um, when we were there for each other growing up and there was no one else. So thank you for always being there for me and for inviting me today to share Aww. my story. I really appreciate you asking. Thanks so much, Samuel, for taking part. You are a huge, huge talent and I can't wait to see what you do next. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe from wherever you get your podcast from. And if you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great too. Until next time, stay safe and I'll see you soon.